Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Science Museum and to our In Conversation with Alexei Leonov. This is an event that is running alongside our Cosmonauts Birth of a Space Age exhibition. I'm Jean Franzik. I'm Deputy Director of the Museum, and it is such a pleasure to welcome you here this evening. This uh, exhibition celebrates a number of firsts, not least that historic moment when humans first left the planet. And I'm pleased to say that the exhibition has proved to be a huge, huge success with both the public and with critics. It's a thrill to have you here today with us this evening, and some of you have been with us um, all day, for a special conversation with cosmonaut Alexei Leonov, twice hero of the Soviet Union and a true pioneer of space exploration. He was one of just 20 young pilots selected for the first cosmonaut mission in squad in 1960. He carried out the first human walk in space when he climbed out of the hatch of Vostok 2 on the 18th of March 1965. And 10 years later, he shook hands in orbit with astronaut Tom Stafford during the Apollo-Soyuz test project. And what some of you might not know about Alexei Leonov is that he is also an artist. This is his work behind us, and it's also on display in the Cosmonauts exhibition here at the Science Museum. Now, with Alexei Leonov tonight is Robin McKee, who has been the science editor of The Observer since 1982. Please join me now in giving them a very warm welcome and a round of applause, and they'll join us on stage. Thank you very much for that warm welcome. Um, I will just plunge straight in. You, you getting this? Yeah. Yes, Luis. Yeah. Um, I am. What did you think of the? What, what, what feelings went through your head when you saw the lunar lander that we have in this magnificent cosmonaut exhibition here? This was the craft that perhaps should have taken you to the moon. What were, what were the feelings you had? Translate it, please. <laughs> Sorry, I haven't put it on. So perhaps you could repeat the question again. I haven't heard the Russian translation because I didn't have the device switched on. So could you repeat the question? Yes, yeah, please. <laughs> what did you feel when you saw the lunar lander uh, yeah, here? I you, understand. You, you got uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. This is the second time I'm here in this auditorium. Uh -huh. <laughs> so in May, back in May, when the exhibition was being put together, I was invited to come here. And I was told about the concept of this exhibition. And I was thinking to myself, that is all fine. But having the experience organizing such exhibitions, I thought, well, perhaps this would be very difficult to achieve. 
and it must have been difficult. So when I entered the auditorium today, tonight, and actually, no, the exhibition tonight, and walked right through from the very first hall where in a very accessible way, beep, 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 and you can see the first satellite emerging, the first satellite launched into space by mankind. You go back to that time. How did it happen? How unexpectedly it appeared. This was the beginning of all the beginnings. And then we had the iron logic of creating the rest of the exhibition from the Vostoks, the Voschods, the Soyuz spacecraft, Soyuz Apollo mission, and then the International Space Station. Very broadly presented our moon mission as well, our moon program, lunar program. I, the Soviet moon, lun, lunar program. So I think only half a percent in our country actually did see the lunar capsule, the trolley that used to run across the moon for six months. And now we have it all present here, exhibited here. It has been done so cleverly, so beautifully, so intelligently, without impo any imposition. But in fact, everybody would understand all the steps in the development and conquering space. So people who put this exhibition together must have been really clever at doing it. I understand and have seen many exhibitions. I have visited many exhibitions, and I can tell you for sure, and I can tell the museum that this is the best of anything I've seen before over the past 55 years of mankind conquering space. So on behalf of my country, my people, I would like to thank you for this gigantic work that you have carried out, for your interest, for your keen interest for coming here tonight. This really is very precious. Thank you. A suspicious year to pick because I think this is the 50th anniversary for perhaps what you're most famous for, and that is taking the work to be the first human being to walk in space. Um, how long were you training for that? And was it the physical expertise or the, or the, or the classical education? Which, which, came, which was most important in, to, in your selection? Uh, <coughs> so how it happened? In 1962, the main designer, Mr. Korolev, invited our crew of the Austrian cosmonauts to his design studio, design bureau, and presented a whole series of different spacecrafts, the Vostoks, which had already been used by four people, the Voschot One, with two engines, which could be manned by three people, and a very interesting design of the space craft for 
walking into space. And it was, we were told very simply, that a sailor on an ocean liner should know how to swim in the open ocean. So a cosmonaut on board the spacecraft or a space station, at the time there were no space stations, of course, should be able to swim in the open space, not just to swim, but also to do installation and dismantling various equipment. There were 20 of us standing in front of him, young officers, young pilots, wearing overcoats, white overcoats, and we were listening to him. And then he looked at us, all of us, addressed me, picked me out, and he said, you, little eagle, please put the spacesuit on and try to walk out of the spacecraft into the airlock, out of the airlock, and back. It will be you. So two hours later, I would like you to talk to the technical management committee. And that is what I was frightened of. I had never talked at such committees before. I knew what I had to do. I could think about, but in order to make a presentation to doctors of science, to all those scientists, it was a real problem for a pilot, although I was a senior pilot, a captain by that time. But it was very difficult for me to do that. But I completed, accomplished that mission, and in the, within the given time, reported back to the Technical Management Committee that that could be done, given the fact that, and then I gave them the conditions that had to be put in place. Korolev stopped me and said, interrupted me and said, wait, you have to work first, and then you would criticize, you would be able to criticize us. And then he introduced the leading pilot, test pilot, Captain Leonov, to the rest of them and said, you can start from tomorrow. And this is how I found myself in that team of people. It's interesting to mention that on the eve of that day, we had, well, in fact, prior to that, we had been working for two years in the design bureau. I was at the Cosmodrome day in, day out, and also in the place where they were putting together the spacecraft. And so people had an opinion about me. They knew how I tested different spacecraft. He, they knew how I could study well. And he was rather complimentary when he talked about me. He said, this is a good pilot. This is a good engineer. He is also an artist. And he is really a, a very nice person. We could trust him with this mission, with this work. This were his words about me. This is how he characterized me. He, in fact, characterized or talked about two people openly, Yuri Gagarin and myself, said these wonderful words about both of us. But I only learned about it many years later, when he was no longer with us, when Sergei Pavlovich Karolev was no longer with us, that he had talked about me so warmly. And so I started training. We had to also train in the weightless situations. I, we had to have very good physical training. Of course, the gloves weighed 25 kilos each. So and we had to try and 
press them together. It was very difficult to work in such gloves, very, very difficult indeed. The next thing that was necessary to the whole program of weightlessness, the whole program of entering open space, walking in space, and also various emergency situations had to be tested when we would become unconscious during our exit into space. We had to test all such situations during our two flights, two 104 flights that performed different parables and we had to perform within 25 seconds of weightlessness different operations in the special cameras, depressurized cameras to the height of several thousand meters. That was already risky for life, but the altitudes that we found ourselves later were 500 kilometers, much higher. Everything we tried to test on land, on Earth, in fact, could be done apart from the impact of solar radiation, which could not be tested on Earth. So 500 kilometers, that altitude, and the ascent to that altitude is something that has not been tested because it's impossible wherever you are, however technologically developed you are. What we do today currently is use a lot of training sessions in hydro weightlessness. So after my flight, it was my idea to create a lab, a special laboratory to work in hydro weightlessness and we allow every cosmonaut to practice this on Earth. But of course, the conclusive stages using the ill craft with the 30 seconds of weightlessness and the diameter of 60 meters where you can actually train quite well on the aircraft. So everybody who wants to go into space today has to undergo the entire set of training working in imitating work in open space and have a certificate that they're fit to walk in open space. In the same way as today, we, that Tim Peak has actually undergone all this training so he knows, if necessary, how to walk in open space and to work in open space using his spacesuit, which he tried back on Earth, and the parameters that he knows very well, all of us know very well. So I know the biography of Tim's biography. In fact, I, I tell you straight away. In the first crew that Helen Sharman uh, and others who went into space with us, and Tim, in fact, was a standby for Helen Sharman and another Tim. So we have different teams. And of course, in NATO, those astronauts, lots of teams among the astronauts. Tim Peak. Look at his biography. He must have been created to fly into space. His whole life has been a preparation. Since childhood, he had been preparing, being a cadet in, his, in, in the military academy, a pilot, tester pilot, a survival instructor. He has 
done the entire range of training. So when he came to us, he was the Bachelor of Sciences, an engineer who knows technology and equipment really well, has undergone the entire set of training with excellent results. And several, uh, several weeks ago, I was present at the traditional send-off of the crew in the Star City. Early in the morning, at 8 o'clock in the morning, the crew got together in the dining room of the Space City as different from NASA. Our cosmonauts actually eat free of charge at the expense of our government and quite well, too. So the crew were standing there and also the standby crew as well. The reserve crew were there as well. Rebecca was standing side by side with Tim. A man and a woman, a good family. Family came to see him off. Of course, we uncorked a bottle of champagne, poured the glasses, poured the champagne into the glasses, and each of us said, sent good wishes to Tim. I was the elder, and I was given the right to be first, to bless him into space, to give him my blessing. And my blessing was as follows. You are an experienced crew. You have the most experienced commander, who Yuri Malenchenko, who was going, who is going into space for the sixth time. He has worked on the shuttle, on the Mir, at the International Space Station, and now he is part of your crew. And so we have all the grounds to hope for a very successful mission and successful work in space. They have a fantastic psychological fit. Tim looks like he has lived his whole life in the Star City. Rebecca, everybody treats her like a usual Russian woman walking around the Star City with her children. They have lived in a separate flat together and still living there. After everybody has said their wishes and blessings, the commander and both team thanked to all those, thanked all those who had prepared him for the flight. He said he had no questions outstanding. If such questions arise, he would ask them from space. I've learned everything I had to learn in order to perform this program. Rebecca was standing by his side, and his children, who were really proud of, his, of, of their father, who were really happy to be there. And then we all sat down. This is our tradition. Just before you go on a mission, on a voyage, you sit down for a few seconds, kept silent. Then we all got up, rose up, and went to the bus. And the last photograph been taken and the Chkalovsky aerodrome. And two hours later, they were already at the Cosmodrome. And then you saw the rest today. And I must add that BBC, radio and television, Al Jazeera, reported excellently about every second of the mission, how they got up, how they had their breakfast, how they put on their spacesuits, how they exited the building and went to the buses. I had led the crew and the team at the Cosmodrome for many years and saying farewell to crews, to their launching pads, to their 
including Helen Sharman. I'm not sure whether she's here in the auditorium, but this, she was a fantastic pupil, my neighbor, my neighbor. Very often in the evenings, she would come to visit us, my family, because she was bored without her mother and father. Back where she was staying, we were neighbors. She was an excellent pupil. And despite the fact that there was a lot of training for Tim, Tim Ace, who was a parachutist, and yet Lena was the one who won the choice. On all the parameters, even on the physical parameters, she overcame the centrifuge, the barocamera. She's such a strong woman, a very professional woman. Now she's a mother, but we still call her Lenochka, little Lena, Lena Shaman. So you should be proud of Helen Sharman. You should be proud of Tim Peake. These are fantastic people. And I think Tim would definitely perform the mission in the most brilliant way, accomplish the mission. We have a belief, we the cosmonauts, that first of all, there should be no women at the Cosmodrome it's a rare event to have a woman at the Cosmodrome. Secondly, if cosmonauts come out of their hotel and go towards their bus, and if they meet a woman with empty buckets, it's a bad omen. It's a bad omen. So what I used to do in order to overcome that, I used to find a beautiful girl. She would carry buckets. And when the cosmonauts exited the hotel, suddenly a beautiful woman appeared from the bus with full buckets, full of water. And she would walk right towards them. And they would say, oh, good, this is a lucky sign, a lucky sign. And it never occurred to them. It never occurred to them that that had been staged by me that this good luck omen was actually myself. They had this belief, this firm belief that this was a good luck sign. But that was fantastic. That was the right thing to do. And in winter, that wonderful girl would come out of the bus with buckets full of water, no matter the temperature. And this is how they do it today. And now, of course, they took off and now working at the International Space Station. Six people working there. I think this is perhaps the most calm part of the of Earth where nobody is fighting against anybody else. Nobody is at war with anybody. I would say go into space and work there calmly. Rest from all the problems on Earth. We never had any problems. We don't have any problems now because we understand each other well. We know that we are we have been sent by different peoples that we are their hope, that we have justified this hope and that has been pinned on us. And we are lucky that we have been successful every time. That was the, pa the past, that's the present, and it's going to happen in the future as well. Thank you. Spacewalk, because that is going to be made into a film released uh, very soon, and we're entering the 50th anniversary. Tell us 
how it, how it happened and how it unraveled. Uh. I've already said that before I went out into the space, I had been training very hard in all sorts of training. But of course, you could not predict everything. And uh, three days before the liftoff, there was a launch of a um, flight uh, without a pilot, unmanned flight, and they checked everything, how it all worked, the autonomous nav navigation, how the descent happened, um, how, how the spacecraft uh, actually functioned, how the airlock functioned, how the scaphandra uh, functioned. And uh, uh, we, the that from different points, we had the uh, orders. Uh, the, um, uh, there, there, there was actually uh, the, all, all these unmanned spacecraft. They had a, an automatic um, system of uh, explosion. And so that uh, was done for, for, for the case when, when the spacecraft should be exploded, should be blown up in a certain uh, space. So uh, the main constructor, Sergei, uh, Sergei uh, Karalyov, and the head of the Academy of Science, Mr. Keldish, came. And they explained things to us, explained what trouble we can run into. We said, well, we are prepared. We know everything. And Karalyov said, we will probably change your spacecraft. Uh, we'll change it into an unmanned uh, spacecraft, but uh, we'll do the a new one for you, but it'll take nine months to do it. So we tried very hard to explain to him that we really are very fit now, that we know everything. We know the program, we know the spacecraft, and we really request to be allowed to carry out the program. And I said, we probably had worked through about 3,000 of emergency situations. Well, I slightly exaggerated. Maybe just a 1,000 uh, was, was, a, was a, an extra. And Karalyov looked at me and said, uh, he said, well, during the flight, you will come across the, the, the one that will be the 3,001st. But if you know how to work, you will be prepared for that. And we had the first, the second, the third, the fourth. We had seven emergencies. The ones that had not been previously described uh, at all. The, these were the emergencies of a test flight. And that's why we went there just to check, to test how it's all going to happen. After uh, I, I, I went easily through the airlock when, when it was, uh, I was going out, and I started working, and then I suddenly saw that the spacecraft is uh, not uh, keeping the orientation, and there's not enough 
um, in, enough uh, engine is not working enough. So, so, so uh, I'm actually. Uh, it it was really a very complicated situation. That was something that really put me on the alert. That I realized it it wasn't going to be easy. It was the eighth moment uh, when I felt that my um, uh, tips of my fingers actually uh, were out of my gloves and the toes went out of my shoes and I started thinking, what am I going to do uh, in 10 minutes time when I'll have to go back uh, to the spacecraft? So without anything to lean on, I'll have to uh, get there uh, sort of in 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 every uh, there is a ring every um, 50 meters there is a, a cord and uh, um, I, I will have to actually wind it up and I realized if I didn't do it I would not be able to come back that was something that I immediately uh, thought what I thought about I actually also saw the beauty of the earth I saw uh, the the rivers the the mountains but I thought how am I going back to the uh, spacecraft and at this point our famous radio presenter was saying attention attention uh, the first uh, man is out in the outer space and I thought who's that who's this man And then I thought, God, this is already the Earth that is uh, already the, the, they're covering what we're doing from the ground. Then I thought, well, it's a familiar, familiar voice was saying, uh, Alexei, uh, the, the Politburo members are sitting here and just looking at you doing all your salto martale. Uh, and um, um, we, that, we just finish up your job and just come down. And uh, it was it was the head of the state, of course. And it was really something that encouraged me. That that um, I, it, it it was a good support. And uh, against all the instructions, I I did not tell the ground about the problems. I could have done because it was all open. I. What I did, I actually released the pressure uh, within this the spacesuit um, uh, half. I actually halved it. I, ma I made it uh, less than than it was, and uh, I, I thought I needed this ability to move, and I actually broke uh, bro breached the the instructions, and it. I actually felt much better, and I realized just it, I won't be able to enter uh, to enter um, in normal way on foot. So I, I started using. Uh, I, I I couldn't I couldn't go feet first. So I decided to go head first, and I um, realized that I'll have to 
turn around within the airlock, and then I'll have to enter the spacecraft with my feet first, because that was the only the only chance I had, because the diameter was 120, and uh, my space should was 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 uh, one, 190. So I basically had to fold up twice, and and uh, uh, there wasn't any other way. But then the temperature started going up. The pressure started going up. It was really, really hard work. I realized that there's no other way out, so I won. I won uh, this, this, this battle. So I actually turned around. I checked whether the hatch, the hatch was closed. I started. I went in with the, with the feet first. I entered the spacecraft, and then again I I I, I broke broke the breached the rules, broke the rules, and uh, and I, because I started uh, I I started actually um, drying drying the sweat from my eyes. I usually do not have that much uh, sweat, but I just couldn't see any anything otherwise, and I wasn't supposed to do it. This year in Houston was an interesting international conference, uh, the 50, 50 years of uh, outer space, of people walking into outer space. And um, uh, other people, other cosmonauts, other astronauts uh, were telling me of the same, were telling us about the same problems, that the, the, the sweat was streaming down and they couldn't uh, see anything. The, the, the American cosmonaut had exactly the same uh, problem. And uh, because, because uh, so somebody even had to use his nose to uh, to, um, um, to to see through the glass. That was really a very difficult, risky uh, risky job. And then uh, I, they 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 actually started reproaching me. Uh, why why didn't you tell everybody what had happened? Uh, but of course, I, I did not. I didn't want to tell um, the, the, the the bosses what I did uh, by my own, you know, by my own decision. And Karolyov was really strict, and he said, "Why, why didn't you follow up the instructions?" And I said, "Look, if I actually started explaining everything to you openly, I wouldn't have had time to save myself." And uh, I was just there on my own. So I had been taught how to work. But if, uh, if I started explaining it, uh, then the whole world uh, would have known what problems I was having. And I didn't want that. And Karolyov understood that. And he said, Alyosha, and he always called me Alyosha. He said, Alyosha was absolutely right. And they didn't bother me anymore with this. So he actually saved me there. Uh, then, uh, when we uh, finished the job, we actually stopped the the um, uh, airlock, and what happened? Uh, basically, the solar um, uh, orientation um, device. Uh, the, the the this the, it, it was that the uh, the spacecraft wasn't really um, oriented in in uh, space, and we. We are on the other side of the of the planet, 
and we we don't know who to to, uh, to how we, we didn't have anybody to get in touch with and we didn't know what to do so we decided to uh, if if we the, the the spacecraft could be flying around for 3 years but we only had material to survive for 3 days So basically what we did, we switched off the automatic systems of control, we stopped the programs and then we got in touch and explained what had happened. It was really a sort of a chaos. It was like an explosion because because everything was going so well, but the spacecraft was not really controlled because it was only uh, designed for automatic control and we moved it into manual. So we asked uh, the, the, the Earth whether we are allowed to do the manual control. So, so we went to another turn. So uh, it was fifteen uh, hundred uh, 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 kilometers to the west, instead of the place where we needed to be, instead of Kazakhstan. So basically, we landed not in Kazakhstan, but we landed in Taiga in Siberia, uh, on the other side of the Urals. And uh, we were, if we chose this place, we selected this place, uh, particularly Taiga, the, the, the forest, because we were afraid to go to uh, high rises, to big buildings, to places populated uh, by people. So uh, we we got. We, we 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 were not afraid of this forest. We're not afraid of Taiga. That's how we found ourselves in Taiga. Of course, nobody had been waiting for us there. So all these systems were about two and a half thousands away from us in Kazakhstan. There were no helicopters. Uh, there wasn't anybody around to help us. When we opened the hatch, the air was really frozen. The commander got out. Uh, jumped out, and the snow actually was up to his neck. It was just his head that we could see sticking out of the snow. Then I jumped after him. It was exactly the same thing. My just my head was sticking out. It was very very quiet. So I just uh, started started the 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 radio station and started uh, te by, by tele telegraph uh, started started telling them everything is okay. There were just two letters that I could key in. So so we were heard uh, by the observe, uh, observatory in Berlin, not far from Berlin, uh, in Petropavlovsk-Kamchatsky, in the east uh, of uh, the Soviet Union, but not Moscow. So we had to spend the night in Taiga, in the forest. So. I started uh, to find the the system to uh, understand where we were. I saw the position of the sun. I knew I was uh, in in the north, not in Africa. But where I was, then it started snowing. So we got back into the spacecraft. We were sitting there. It's snowing. It's quiet, very still. The, the, the fan is working. 
Uh, they have them there just for the for the for the cosmonauts if they lose consciousness. Uh, we 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 were still very very conscious, but it was just very very cold. And then this fan making making it more cold. So what I did, I put a stick into the fan. So, so we just got got burned, and that was our way to uh, warm up a bit. We we warmed warmed up our our hands. So that's how the night started. I said, Pasha, I'm freezing. I just, I, I, I just, you know, the, the there was water up to the knees because of the snow. So what we did, we actually the space suits uh, have the foil. Uh, nine layers of the foil. So we actually dismantled the the space uh, the spacesuit, and so we had we actually got uh, we became completely naked. Uh, we took off uh, took our, took off our underwear, and then and then um, we. Uh, we, we, we started. I, I felt absolutely wet, so so I wrung it out because because otherwise it would have been even worse. Can you imagine uh, the 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 tiger, the forest, a spacecraft, two naked men there, and it's snowing? Can you imagine? I do, even to this day I don't know why Pasha did it. I understand why why I did it, but why he did I I don't understand. But but it really it became much warmer uh, we uh, got some got some uh, stuff and we uh, it, it really became became a bit warmer then we we got the fire uh, the then, but we we got the the branches, the tree branches. But the only we only started it, and then it just goes down under the snow. So you have to gather the branches once again. So what what I tried to do is to get the the parachute uh, down. Uh, we we had been training with minus uh, forty, and we wrapped ourselves up into it, and there we slept all right during the training. But this parachute, we just could not get it down. It was huge. The cupola of it was huge. So, so at night, uh, Il fourteen, uh, they they he was just he was just um, flying over us. Uh, but then then the helicopter. Next day, the helicopter landed, uh, and and they they came to save us. Uh, they, they actually skied to us, and the. Uh, they, 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 they actually built a little wooden hut. Uh, the rescue team actually built this hut, and the next night we spent there. Uh, we spent in a warm little wooden hut, and uh, the helicopter actually brought a huge, huge. Uh, pan, uh, a huge cauldron, and uh, the, then we made a big fire, and then we put this uh, cauldron with snow. So, so there is so so again again you see the, these two naked people around this fire in Taiga. Can you imagine? And and we were washing ourselves. That's what we were doing. 
Yes, and uh, so I said, I said, Pasha, it's just nice to be to be uh, in one's motherland. That was nice. So basically, we uh, it was only the third day when we were given skis and we uh, walked nine kilometers got onto the helicopter and then we went to the uh, cosmodrome and before that uh, the there were some pilots who uh, brought uh, some stuff and threw them down to us uh, so so there were uh, coats there were shoes but 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 the um, trousers unfortunately were just hanging there on the branches and and then the cognac bottle actually they they threw it down and it got broken and I was so angry I said why couldn't you actually go, go a little bit down a little bit closer to us and just give it to us why did you have to break everything so that was the end of the program of going out into the outer space. I'd lived, um, would have you hesitated in going, going for a lunar manned flight um, and you might have got there? Do you, do you, do you think that was the, the, main, the main reason for the, 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 the loss of Russian lead? I understand, you are done. Korolev started uh, Karalov started this moon program. Uh, I was the head of this program. I was the first commander of this uh, program to fly around the moon. There was the uh, spacecraft called L1, L2, and there was a rocket Proton that is still in use and is still um, flying very well. That was the first part of the program. And the second part was landing on the moon after the research of, of it. It was signed uh, by, the, by the government in 1964 personally by Khrushchev. But in 1966, uh, Sergei Palch Karalov died. And the head of the program was his deputy, academician uh, whose name was Mission. He's, he's a wonderful somebody who, who carries out somebody else's tasks. Uh, so he was a very good engineer. He was a very um, uh, good obedient person, but he wasn't a very good organizer. And he wasn't ready to take risks. And risks are everywhere, of course. Uh, so six unmanned uh, spacecrafts, they uh, flew around the moon and they just uh, landed. There was just one, one emergency and uh, uh, there was uh, Luna 5, uh, but, but they did uh, very good photographing uh, of the moon and of the Earth from the moon. That was, it was called Luna 5. Yuri Gagarin and myself, we actually approached the government to allow Luna 6 to be manned, to have somebody there. But our arguments didn't work. 
And then Frank Bowman uh, went to the moon. He flew around the moon. And then our officials decided against it, decided not to do it any, uh, at all. But the program uh, landing on the moon was still going on. We had several rockets. Uh, horrible, horrible uh, stuff, uh, very, very hairy, uh, very heavy, uh, about 2,000 tons. And uh, the, because, because the rocket hadn't really had the testing by, by fire, so the first accident happened uh, at the height of 80 kilometers. It just disintegrated, and that really slowed down the research. And my friends, my American friends, uh, told me that we sighed a sigh of relief because we understood that the Soviet Union um, um, that 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 uh, the American the American side a sigh of relief because they thought that they could do it uh, six months earlier, and uh, I I was sure that uh, when uh, Karalov if Karalov had been alive, uh, I'm sure we uh, would have done this sixth flight, but landing even if he had been alive, we wouldn't be able to. They invested $25 billion, uh, and that was one thing. And the other thing, I think, was what we did wrong. Uh, we had simultaneously both manned flights and unmanned flights. And uh, you can see Luna 17, the one that uh, landed uh, there and came back uh, to the ground. We saw these two trolleys. The first one walked around for uh, nine months around the surface of the moon, and then uh, the other four and a half months and went 42 kilometers, and they were checking everything and testing the ground. So we had a really, really uh, good achievements there. But Americans only took, uh, tested uh, the, 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 the ground only in one place. They brought 320 kilos of the soil there. Uh, but, um, and, then, and then we exchanged uh, our specimens of the soil. And it was enough uh, for, for, for testing. Uh, so, so that's Americans gave us uh, their their rock and and soil, and we gave them ours. So, so the, the second program, it uh, we started uh, this. The, it, there was a bit of you know of it. It was really a bit indecent, I would say, and it was started by the Americans. After Stanley Kubrick died, well, when he was 80, when Stanley Kubrick was 80, uh, uh, the journalist visited his wife, and they asked her, how did, did he work? Uh, he's the author of the film Odyssey of uh, 2001 and the film Americans on the Moon. So she said he, 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 really, he really worked hard when he made, uh, made this film in uh, Hollywood about Americans landing on the, space, on the moon. And she was right because two or rather three 
spacecrafts, one in Smithsonian uh, Museum, uh, where you can't really uh, not only make film, but you can't even take photographs there. So the, the second spacecraft was in Hollywood, and he finished filming there because he wanted to show uh, how the hatch is being uh, opened and how Neil Armstrong was was actually going out of it. Uh, so uh, it, it could not it could not uh, couldn't have been done on the moon. There wasn't anybody to film him. So uh, there, there became a sort of a drama in America, in Hollywood. They even arrested two people. But, but uh, there is a, a lot of uh, ignorance. There was a lot of ignorance there. And what everybody uh, remembered how Frank Borman f flew around the moon and uh, then the landing. But uh, they didn't remember about Tom Stafford that uh, he actually went uh, 100 meters lower and actually he filmed the whole way for the for the landing of the next uh, spacecraft uh, today even americans themselves do not remember that and then uh, Cern and Schmidt, uh, uh, they, they had, there was this trolley which they uh, actually it was driving around the the, 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 the moon and the, lots of people have forgotten about it, all about it. And um, uh, the, there was in uh, Apollo 13, Apollo 14, the fuel exploded, and they decided not to land, but they flew around the moon uh, and came back. And for the whole week, the whole America uh, uh, was praying uh, and kept their, their fingers crossed uh, because uh, the, the whole uh, the whole people actually was uh, praying for the uh, team to be saved. So I'm telling it on purpose because now again we have this wave in uh, um, in in uh, social networks and in uh, the media that um, there was something wrong there no there was real real wonderful achievements there I, I met uh, two two weeks ago um, uh, the, the man the second man who I had known him previously Brian Alderman and and he he finished the Massachusetts University and he was he's quite an interesting person he's 85 but he told in every detail how all this worked how he landed how uh, how how he uh, he did all this but Buzz Aldrin is a remarkable person thank you. time I think for a quick question from the audiences Somebody over there got a hand up really fast at the end. I'm amazed. We've got a microphone somewhere? Over there. Thank you. I've got a few questions. I'll say them in English and in Russian. 
So, <laughs> quickly. <laughs> my first question is, how different is weightlessness in open space than inside the rocket? Значит, um, как, uh, как отличается невесомость в открытом... So basically just translating the same thing. Right. Armenian radio says there are two different big differences as a joke. So when you're in an aircraft, it's the same as in a spacecraft, you don't feel the state of space. You're looking through the window, in the porthole, it's that's all you can see. But when you're in open space, you can feel you're part of universe. Part of the universe, you can have stars all around you and above you. Earth is part of space. And you see it, it is part of space. And you have this incredible feeling of delight and understanding of space and time, how they come together. So this is a completely different state. When you can suddenly see at once half a continent in front of you from the height of 500 kilometers, altitude of 500 kilometers, I saw a circle of the radius of 1,750 kilometers encompassing the whole of Europe, both northern and southern part of Europe. And when I was higher than 500 kilometers, at the orbit of 65 degrees, I could see the entire Earth beyond the pole, both north and south. Where is that painting supposed to be above? Second question. <laughs> this is above the Black Sea, above the Crimea, above Crimea. They say, oh, he was having his eye on the Crimea at the time, back at the time. Um, have they still got your uh, spacecraft in a museum, your particular, uh, the one you went with the spacewalk? No, it's not here. The spacecraft, Voschot 2, there's only one of them. And it is in the design bureau of Korolev. It's back in that building. It's not bad, but of course the very first examples are still in the offices of the design bureau. and. Tourists cannot visit it. It is their banned from visiting it. But you can see Voschods, Vostoks, Soyuz Apollos there. All the originals are kept there. And I think they're discussing how that museum could be singled out of that banned facility so that people could visit it, so that tourists and visitors could come and see them with their own eyes. But the Central Museum in Moscow is a memorial museum. It mostly containing documents, small objects, small artifacts, 
and my spacecraft, which was the duplicate, is in fact kept there, exhibited there, and also the airlock used by me during the training sessions. The original airlock was shot off from the air spacecraft and burned during the descent, but the descent capsule or module is the original, which is exhibited here, and Valentina Tereshkova's spacecraft is the original, and of course the space suits here are the original. The only original of the lunar is exhibited here as well as a beautiful, beautiful lunar craft. When I saw it, I remembered my youth, all the years I had spent designing and training on that craft. You can now see it with your own eyes. It's here in the exhibition in the museum. Thank you. Some Um, I heard of a project to make the lunar rocket in orbit as opposed to using the N1 rocket. Do you think it would have been more successful? Well, at the moment, we understand, we, today we understand very well the new technologies available to us but of course, currently, neither in Russia nor in the United States, nobody has a program, a lunar program. China has a lunar program, an official lunar program. It has been authorized by the state to go ahead. But in order to perform that or execute that program, I know that Obama has put an end to that in the United States but they're now working on creating a new engine and a new rocket. When, the, when this system has been created, then we can talk about a lunar flight. But there is no official program in any country other than China. There is no lunar program, official lunar program, either in the United States or in Russia, although we have a lot of developments in both countries, neither a Mars or a moon program. To begin such a program, you have to have a government decision. You have to have sponsors. Sponsors, sorry, no, sponsors cannot create such a program. It is up to the government to sign it off, to devote resources to it. And now we have to do it together. You cannot do it single-handedly. No country can do it single-handedly. Any questions? Last one. I'm going to ask the question in Russian. You have achieved and you have lived through what most people have no understanding what it's like to be in a weightless state, how to walk in space. Perhaps you have even, in fact, fulfilled your dream. Has it actually impacted your life, your understanding after that first step into the open space, after your first walk in space? How has it impacted your life? We have a joke that when the Armenian radio are being asked, where is it better to live, on Earth or in space? And the Armenian radio team said, on Earth, but after space. 
And indeed, man, given that we have our history, when we were selected out of 3,000 pilots, younger than 30, using all the latest aircraft, only 20 passed the test out of 3,000 pilots. I never imagined that I would actually survive those tests and trials because first I was a test pilot, tester pilot, and when I was taken as a test pilot, I, I was recruited, I thought, fine. And then they offered me a different mission. They said, we are putting together a separate group and we suggest that you become part of that group. What is this group? You have to participate in the design and construction of a spacecraft and also putting together a program and also fly such spacecraft. And this is really the fulfillment of the dream. And I was thinking, would I be able to do it? And how could I achieve it? How could I actually get to flying into space? So when the preparation stage started, 20 people, you couldn't train all the 20 people. So they decided that, in a very clever fashion, they decided to divide us according to our height. So the first group, Vostok, were all the cosmonauts who were smaller than 175 centimeters height. So these were the Vostok cosmonauts. So they were being trained, and I was four centimeters higher, taller. So in fact, I was lucky because I was given a different spacecraft, a more difficult spacecraft with difficult, more difficult tasks. So sometimes you have to be a little bit higher than other people, a little bit taller. Thank you very, thank you, the audience. Let's give these guys a huge round of applause.